All right, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are and whenever you are, you are tuned into Erased. Welcome back on the Asian Highway Podcast Network. I'm your host, Pimo. Today is Friday, April 30th. I'm coming to you from Austin, Texas. Joining me from Southern California is the intelligent, the energetic, the bright Mary Carrion. Hello, Mary. Hi, Pimo. How's it going? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's another day in paradise. It's it's raining here in Austin. You know, climate change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's um, it's very hot. I'm in LA. It's very very hot. It's been hot. Yesterday, traveled down to Orange County and was in Long Beach for a little bit, and it was like kind of scorchy a little bit. It was oh. uniquely uniquely warm for this time I, of year in this area. Weather-wise, I've had an interesting the past ten days. Uh, so I, I obviously I obviously met up with you last weekend when I was in LA, and what was interesting was the days before me leaving Austin for LA, it was pretty chill and cool here in Austin, and then the day I left LA, it shot up to ninety. So Austin becomes ninety when I'm not here, and that weekend was nice. But I come to LA, it's chill and cool the whole weekend, and then I leave LA, it gets hot and it gets rainy here in Austin. So basically, I've went on a ten-day like streak of like gloomy and cold weather, and every time I was out of the other city, that city was hot. That's funny. I wish that you would come back to LA. <laughs> <laughs> bring, bring some cool. I'm the climate change the world needs, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. You, uh, we need, we need the rain. Keep bring, right. come back, Pimo, please. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe if if the if the yellow environment gets better because of my return, I'm all for that. I'm actually, I'm actually convinced you to come back. Please, so, please come back. <laughs> yeah. So one of these, one of these days, it'll happen. So any event, uh, until that day comes, today is episode five of our environmental news podcast. It's our third week with just me and you, Mary. But our next episode, which is episode six, will feature our our usual trio of me, you, and Dana Miller. It'll Dana, be Dana's great return. Her great return, her triumphant return. It's crazy because Dana texted me like, say, hey, guys, I miss you. Please don't cut me from the podcast. I'm like, <laughs> we know why you're not here, Dana. You are in, she is in the Gulf of Mexico doing a film. And she will tell us all about it. I think uh, her NDA expires tomorrow on May 1st. So when she's back on with us uh, in a few days, we'll find out about this documentary she's been working on in the Gulf oh. And we're going to tell the world. We're going to tell the world. <laughs> I, hope, I hope the world's ready. I hope the world is ready. I don't know. So I don't know if the ready. Yeah, until then, today we're talking, talking about two topics. Uh, I will be leading off today with a revisitation of last week's topic on the COVID crisis in India, which is going on strong, sadly. And Mary, you'll be talking about Nestle and the water, the ocean, and we'll, we'll deep dive into Nestle's shenanigans i'll say for lack of a better word right now but back to india covid is really really bad there it's so bad it's warranting a second consecutive week of us talking about it here on erased and as you know anytime there's a public health crisis it is automatically an environmental crisis which is why the, the topic is still relevant today so let's dive into this for the second week in a row and leading off this week's new discussion India is in the throes of another disastrous wave. This is the second wave of, of COVID cases in India. On April 30th, India had reportedly recorded more than 386,000 cases of COVID. This is a world record. One day, 386,000 cases. 
More than 200,000 Indians have already died from COVID as of April 29th. A Reuters report says this wave could result in a death toll five to 10 times higher than 200,000 people were yet. So we're talking between a million and two million deaths once this wave is over, which is catastrophic. The Indian Supreme Court says the country's healthcare system has reached a breaking point and retired healthcare workers could be summoned back to the hospital. That's how bad the situation is. There are also reports of journalists, people like me and you, Mary, who are dying because they were signed to cover the second COVID surge. So journalists are even dying. So people who are telling these stories already will make it to the other side. That's so sad. It's too sad. Yeah, that's horrible. Right. And this, after India had seemingly come out of the, of the COVID pandemic, the country seemed to have it under control as recently as a few weeks ago. And this is why this whole discussion is relevant, because if you look at India in March, cases weren't near, anywhere near where they are. So this second spike is dramatic. And there are a couple of reasons why. So let's get into this. Uh, before we get into the reasons why, I did want to point out some positive news. Uh, and it's, it's, it's hopefully uh, the first step in, in, in this thing getting better. The United States had sent some aid to, to India earlier this week. Some, some of the aid uh, has, is coming in today. There's more aid coming in uh, early next week. That said, uh, DC still announced a travel ban on people from, coming from India to the United States because cases are that crazy there that people from India now can't come to the United States. More than 150 million vaccines have been distributed in India. But when we factor in that the population is 1.4 billion people, that's only 10% of the population that's been vaccinated. So nine out of 10 Indians are still lacking a vaccination. This is even more profound when you factor in that 75% of the country lives in rural parts of the country. So getting the vaccines to them is even more difficult. So it's not as easy as like, hey, let's just get everybody vaccinated. Three out of four people don't even live in the cities. So the, getting access to a vaccine is next to impossible, or it's really difficult. But here's a kicker. And uh, I, I, this is going to be a little weird because the person I'm about to bring up here, who's the external affairs minister of India, his daughter was the co-founder of Asian Highway. And she was uh, our first, uh, one of our first co-hosts on our sister podcast, uh, Storytellers in Action. So I hate to call him out, but he was in the news today. Uh, the external affairs minister, S. Jaisankar, uh, had criticized the international media for its alleged one-sided narrative of India's COVID crisis, focusing too much on the negative. Well, you know, when literally 300,000 people are dying every single day, I don't know what else you're going to focus on. 300,000 people are dying every single day. Or not dying, they're getting, they're getting diagnosed every single day. It's crazy, right? So you got this guy saying that the Modi government, the Narendra Modi government, who's Narendra Modi is the prime minister, is getting too much slack for being blamed for not controlling this crisis. But, okay, here's some things that he, he left out. You know, uh, there was an election in the state of West Bengal. West Bengal is home to one of the five largest cities in the country, Kolkata. It's in the eastern part of the country. So they had elections there, mass elections, which basically became a super spreader event. Also, oh, no. also happening, oh, this is worse, also happening, in West Bengal and a few other cities is a Hindu pilgrimage event called Kumbh Mela. It's one of the biggest, biggest pilgrimages in the world. The 2019 version of this event, which was the last pre-COVID uh, happening of Kumbh Mela, had 50 million people attending at once. 50 million people in one place. 
That's how big this event gets. Now this year we were talking maybe about a million or two million people, but you saw a couple million people in one place, in this place, the, the Ganges River in Kolkata, that's another super sport event. So you have an election, a massive election, and a massive pilgrimage happen at the same time. And you have literally the worst possible recipe for, for disaster. So you have Kumela, you have an election, and you know, India, unlike the United States, isn't that isn't that large of a country geographically. I mean, population, so you have a lot of people packed in the small areas. So when you start easing restrictions and more people are going out, we just you're gonna have people like I mean, if if you've ever seen an Indian train, you're packing thousands of people in a small train, you know, it, it's tight there. So you, you're literally having, even if you don't have a kumela or an election, you're still having just by natural people walking around in, in, these, in these dense cities, creating super spreader situations. And so this is what the situation is. Uh, on that Kumela event, you're talking about a million people who took a dip and the, they literally went into the Ganges River. And the Ganges River is probably one of the dirtiest rivers in the world. Because, and this will be an example, my dad's ashes, when, I, when, I, when, when, we, when, you know, when my dad passed away and we, we cremated him, my dad's ashes are in the Ganges River. So it, this is a Hindu tradition to spread ashes, spread human ashes in the Ganges River. So imagine going into this water, body of water with human ashes. And then you have people who may not be as, you know, hygienic, who are also going to the river. Another reason why going to this river is going to spread disease. So what does all this mean, right? All this has resulted in an oxygen shortage in India. Hospitals, which are already at capacity, in fact, they're at overcapacity, can't even respond to all the people who are coming for treatment. There's no oxygen, there's no beds, there's not enough doctors, there's just literally no way to treat the hundreds of thousands of people who are, who are sick. And these are why people are dying. And last week, as we talked about, when these people are dying, they're being cremated, which is now creating a lot of air, air a lot of bad air right because smoke coming out from from the from the crematories so supplies are coming help is coming but it might not be coming fast enough and then you have this this external affairs manager uh, director who's not acknowledging the fact that kumela happened like the country allowed that to happen he's not allowing the fact he's not mentioning the fact that the country allowed to have a massive election happening um and get this by the way 94 COVID clinics in Mumbai, which is the second largest in the country, are closed. This is people, places where people went to get treatment for, for or vaccine for the COVID virus. There was not enough supply for, for vaccines. So they closed down all these vaccine centers. There's more people, there's more demand than there's supply. And then, of course, there's the infrastructure issues of getting the, 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 uh, the vaccines out to the rural places. And oh, by the way, India had, had exported 66 million vaccines to other countries. They didn't even keep any for themselves. So there's a shortage, not because just because of population, but the country exported helping. And hey, God bless them for helping other countries, but you gotta help yourself too, right? And this is what's going on. So the question now is, is the Modi government responsible for not doing enough to maintain a lockdown? Should Kumela have been canceled? How should the elections in West Bengal have been handled? And end of the day, should 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 we have taken the in India? Should they have taken the gas off the brakes? Sort of, you know. 
And does this become a precautionary tale for us in the United States? Like, are, are we getting too lax here? And if we get too lax, and this is my question to you, Mary, is what are the lessons we learned here, right? We, we literally see a country that was doing a great job of managing the virus, and they literally took their foot off the gas. And now we're seeing a, a huge spike, the worst spike in the world. And their death toll, they'll have more people die in the next two weeks than the number of people that have died the entire 15 months in the United States. And to me, this sends a message of like, we gotta be, we still have to be vigilant. I mean, we, we people like me and you, Mary, are vaccinated, but that doesn't mean we could just go willy nilly and just live our lives like nothing happened ever again, right? And so, and let's also add one more layer to this, Mary, before I hand that off to you, one more layer to this, and this is the environmental connection to COVID in general, right? So, like I said, there's already the, the crematories and the, and the smoke that's polluted in the air. But then you also have increased plastic waste. You have your masks now that are being found in the water and everywhere else as, as trash. You have a, de a decrease in recycling, increased pollutants to soap and, and hand sanitizer, and also an increased use of wastewater and water consumption in general. So these are the negative impacts on the environment of COVID in general, India or not. And so COVID obviously does not know any borders. So Mary, how do you see this playing out? This problem is not isolated to India, right? And what lessons can we learn here in the United States? Well, first and foremost, before even getting into answering or attempting to answer some of these questions or, you know, pose other questions as, as my answers to you, um, I want to say thank you for reporting on this. Uh, you understand India in a way that I don't think a lot of other reporters do. And, you know, you have, you understand the nuances of the country. You understand the nuances of that situation in a way that a lot of people don't. And I think that, you know, that obviously shows in people's reporting. Um, so you, there's a, there's a certain type of life that I feel like you bring to this and also, you break it down so well. And I appreciate that so much because all of the information coming from India to the United States is muffled. It doesn't feel totally full. It doesn't feel like a full uh, source of information that we receive here. It doesn't feel like a fulfilling information received. It's not totally robust, I suppose, is how I feel about it. But hearing it come from you, somebody who not only ha has been there, but has family there, you know, your parents are from there. It, like you have so much connection to there. So I appreciate that so much for breaking it down for us. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, I think that everybody should be looking at what is happening in India right now in the, like, especially from the United States, people should be looking at what's happening in India because it could happen here again, despite the vaccines, there might be, you know, a slight difference in, uh, there might be slight nuances, you know, like maybe we're not going to have 300,000 people a day uh, coming down with COVID, but maybe it'll be a little bit different than that because, you know, it isn't as packed here for one. In some places, sure, but it's not really like that. Also the restrictions, while they are being lifted now, um, I think that the restrictions have done a good job thus far um, in kind of preventing people from, you know, getting each other sick but i think ultimately <laughs> i think ultimately that um you know we're not at the end of covid we're not at the end of the pandemic and i think that we have 
a lot more. We, I think that we have a lot more to go. And I think that while everybody is super excited that we're, you know, experiencing these lifts, these restriction lifts, we are not out of the water yet. And not everybody's getting vaccinated too here in the United States. And I think that could also be a thing as well. Um, especially like there's no way for people to know who's vaccinated and who's not and who is going to wear masks and who's not, and who's going to, you know, stay inside. There's no, there's no one patrolling that in any capacity. So I don't know, it's going to be a free for all. Also, if you're going to get sick, like, I don't know. I don't know. We, uh, it's not over is basically what I'm saying. And I think that with India too, like that's the lesson here. And I think that um, it's really unfortunate that information is not accessible. Reliable information is not accessible. And I think that it's really unfortunate that vaccines are also not accessible there right now um, in the way that they should be. Because I mean, you know, if only 10% of the country is being vaccinated or has the option to be vaccinated, that really means only the rich people do. So, or, or at least uh, the people who have, who have the privilege. I mean, they may not have the privilege, but they, they have they have the privilege. You know, maybe they, they have they, privilege. You know, they 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 live in the in, in, in the heart of Mumbai. They're middle class. They they have a job. You know, right. Right? They, they yeah. went to college. I mean, you know, they they you know, the they have a certain they have access that maybe someone in the local village doesn't have, for example. Um, Absolutely. Well, I'm also. I'm also curious, like in, in general, this isn't necessarily, this doesn't necessarily pertain to India uh, exactly, but like, what is all the bio waste? Like, what is all of the waste, like the biohazard, hazard, biohazardous waste of um, all of the injections that we've been giving people, you know, of all of the, of all the shots, like what, what's happening with that? I know that we're supposed to burn that stuff, but also like, what is that? Well, and that, that was one of the, that is in general, not just in India, but in general, one of the, the, the negatives of, of COVID on the environment. Again, you know, right. and this is one thing, you know, this applies to literally everything. There's no such thing as a smoking gun. There's no such thing as a perfect solution. Everything comes with an inherent risk or downside. And we just hope that the benefit of that action far outweighs the downside. So in this case, the argument would be that the benefit of being vaccinated far outweighs the environmental costs of being vaccinated. So it's better to be healthy than to have, it, it, the health benefit of, of getting a vaccine is so worth it that we could accept the cost of the biohazard. And the biohazard is just that, and this is again, one of the negatives of, of the vaccine is that the, the this plastic waste, the plastic that, that maybe that covers the the uh, the, the injector needle and, and, and the contraptions. And, and the syringe. The syringe, yeah, the, and then the uh, the testing that we've done, uh, labs are obviously a lot of testing that that really that leads to biohazardous waste. So yes, there is a high level of biohazardous waste, and and so now we don't know yet. But like I said, the the, the trust is that the the level of biohazard waste is it doesn't outweigh the benefit of being vaccinated. That's what the hope is, right? And so let, let's let's just hope that we. <laughs> That, that, that doesn't come up back to, to, to bite us in the ass five, ten yeah. years from now, you know? Yeah. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, this is more of a cultural statement. And then I have a question I want to follow up after that. But, and, you know, obviously here in the United States, we have, we have anti-vaxxers for whatever reason, they, and people have their beliefs. I have one friend who was like, oh, I had one friend who had a heart attack after she was vaccinated, so I'm not going to get a vaccine now. Right, like one case. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not even funny, but it is funny. Right, like okay, well, you have one example, but you have maybe, and then, but then you look at the other side. 
it was an ER doctor that said something to the effect of the only COVID cases now that are coming to the ER are people who are not vaccinated. Like that's pretty much the only people now that are being in the ER to this, at this point now in the United States. So you have that number there and one heart attack over here. I mean, it's just like, so that, that's yeah. the United States. So I want to, the reason I make this is I want I want to take this to India now. And this is where, again, the, the it, you know, I mentioned infrastructure and distance is one issue. But another issue is the mentality that they have in some of these villages. And this is something I'm, I'm not trying to be like this, this urban discriminatory guy here. It's you do face this in, in the smaller towns of there is of like, ah, eh, I don't believe like, oh, I could press my nose. And that, 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 if I press my nose and I blow it the right way, there's all these like witch, witchcraft or weird urban legends, mother's tales, right? Of like, oh yeah, I do this with my nose. I kind of scratch it and now I'm free of COVID. Like they would rather do that over take a shot and, and trust science. I mean, I feel like I feel like the anti-vaxxers here in the United States also feel the same way. They're like, right. oh, if I like don't wear this deodorant, I'm going to be COVID free forever. Or like right. if I like wear this bergamot oil I, or I wear this crystal around my neck, if I wear this kyanite around my neck, I'm for sure not going to get COVID. <laughs> right. And, 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 and the, but that plays into not just that plays in everywhere. I, I, every country has their own their own black magic, for lack of a better phrase, you know, uh, mentality. But that's what's happening to also, which also is going to slow down the recovery. And if we're, you know, I mean, heck, if, if we're only at 60, 70% vaccination, we may never get back to normal. We may continuously have this thing play out for years, not just months. Yeah. Well, I have a question. And my guess ultimately it's that I'd like, so would you say that most of the people who are in India who don't have access to the vaccines? If they did have access, it's a two-part question. If they did have access, would they take it? One. And two, if they if they wouldn't take it, is it fair to call them all like, you know, their version of anti-vaxxers? So the first question, uh, I, I, I'm... I know it's hard to say. Well, it's hard to say because it, 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 it's, it's basically one step of speculation, right? Right, I know. Yeah. But, but so... I, it, so to be fair, this is a speculative answer, but I'll I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it that just I'll give it that that asterisk that this is a speculative answer. That yes, I, I do think if given an option, you would not have people think it. Just there will there will be enough pushback. Just law of averages. I mean, I'm not I'm not thinking for everybody, but law of averages, considering the size of India, 1.4 billion people, you'll have a decent chunk of the population that will even with with the axis won't take it. I mean, that's just law of averages. I and mean, you're going to have hundreds of millions of people, 100 million, 200 million people that, that are going to be in that camp. That's, and that's only looking at 10, 20% of the population, right? And this is and this is also talking about, you know, the mostly ag like agrarian right. population. Okay. Right, yeah. Which they don't have access to the same information. Also, the information coming through India is not exactly reliable. And also access to education is a little bit skewed not available as well is that right right this is very true i mean and again hey look the, the same applies here in the united states as well right? we don't want to make this, that this is an indian an india issue of course i mean you, you go to like you know rural north dakota and i'm sure you'll find the same level of misinformation 
as you do in rural India, right? Of course, of course. Oh my God. I mean, when you're, when you, <laughs> no offense to people in rural Idaho or rural wherever, wherever. Um, but, you know, like they probably got a version of Tucker Carlson going on and they've, you know, got their whole conspiracy world that they're living in. Right. So, you know, and, and there's something you said about the, the, the one source or no source uh, information. And, and so that definitely exists in India, just like anywhere else. And so that's yeah. an issue. And to, you know, I guess to answer your second question, yes, there is a, there is a, I mean, I, I guess it would be to the people who will not take the vaccine, it would be fair to call them a version of anti-vaxxers. A version of anti-vaxxers. Yeah. 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 I feel like anti-vaxxers is a, is a very um, Western thing. Yes, very much so. And, and, and let's be honest, like the, the, the mindset is different here in the United States. I mean, there's almost, I'm going to say something really mean here. It's almost <laughs> as if the people who are anti-vaxxers here went to Google University School of Medicine. Google University? <laughs> Google Medicine. For sure. They got the medical degree from Google University, right? So they think they know it all. And I can say this because I have a sister who's a physician. And she, she's a physician at Kaiser in, in, in Southern California. And the amount of times that she has patients who will lecture her on what the treatment that she should be giving them because they read it on WebMD. Right. Well, I also would like to point out just in general, and this is, again, I'm not going to go into the details here because I truly have to do a little bit more research, but I know that the person who is like the godfather of the movement of anti-vaxxing actually came up with actually um created a, vac a vaccine he actually created a vaccine so there was, there's, there's a whole you know thing behind this that i think a lot of the anti-vaxxers end up missing uh in their uh quote-unquote research <laughs> um but yeah there's an element of that that especially in the anti-vaccine community they do not talk about they don't talk about it so i'm gonna i'm gonna make a, a, a broad statement here and i think it applies to anything we could talk about, not just today's discussion, not just the environment, but anything politically, socially, whatever, culturally. There, we now live in a world where freedom suddenly means being free of consequence, right? I have the freedom to say whatever I want to say and bear no consequence for saying it. That's what freedom means now to a lot of people. I could be anti-vax and say, let's put all these anti-vax statements because there are no consequences to me believing that, and I'm, and that's my that's me being free, right? I could I could say whatever I want to say, and I have the freedom to say whatever I want to say because that's what freedom is. And there's a distinction between I think this is where we get lost is there's freedom and then there's anarchy. They're not and freedom and anarchy are not one and the same. And freedom comes with responsibility. Freedom comes with consequences. Yes, you are free to do to do whatever you want. But there are consequences for those actions. You just can't say, I'm going to shoot you and do whatever I want to do and face a consequence for that. Right. And, and that's why that's where I think we are right now in the world is we've redefined freedom to be to mean being free of consequence. And if we could somehow get back to a social norm where there are consequences attached to words and actions, we'll see things kind of get back under control in terms of the spread of the way information is spread and the way we disseminate information. So that's a statement I kind of want to make. And I think it applies not just to anti-vaxxers, but to, to anything that's out there. So 
with that said, I did want to ask you one more question and move on to Nestle. And the question is, so there's the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, and he's getting all the blame for, for this. And I guess what is what would you say is his culpability? What is his responsibility for allowing super spreader events to happen, such as a pilgrimage and an election? And unlike the United States, people in India take the election seriously. We're talking 90% turnout. People turn out for elections in India. So would it, it, being as fair as you can, Mary, and you know as balanced as you can, where is the culpability for any leader who would allow that allow this situation to happen? Not just Modi, but anybody who's in the same in the same position. As a as a leader, it is your as a leader of a country, it is your responsibility to do everything in your power to protect the people. Like full stop. That's it. Your your role at that point is to act as a protector and as a guide to the people of your country. And if you are not doing that by letting them gather, and if that is what is causing, which is obvious, like if that's what's causing the problem, which it obviously is with COVID, mm -hmm. then you are not doing your job. And while of course there is going to be upset, like people of course want to celebrate their religions, like religious holidays are incredibly important and gathering with your community is so important which is what has made covid so difficult it is what has made this pandemic just awful the fact that we can't have that and we haven't been able to experience that so yes of course there probably would be an uproar but when you are a leader of a country like you sign up for that job you sign up for taking on the role of being like no sorry we can't gather all of all holidays are off We'll reschedule them next year and we'll rage, you know, like do something like that. They, it's, it's your responsibility. And if you are not doing that, then you are failing your people and you're just falling off. <laughs> you're falling short. And I think that that is significantly worse than simply allowing your people to gather when you know, when he, like, he obviously knows that people are not supposed to be doing that. So like I, that's pretty much all I have to say on that. There's, there's no, there's no in the middle. There's really no even really being too balanced about it either. You know, it's it it's one, it's one thing, and it's that he's not protecting his people now. Right. I, I do want to add one more general comment. When you, you know, when you brought up the the religion point, I you know, obviously we had a big debate here in the United States about uh, COVID's impact on religion. And when the George Floyd riots were going on, you had this interesting juxtaposition of city leaders, state leaders, federal leaders saying, okay, churches, you can't gather, but protesters, you're allowed to be in the streets, right? So you had this question among um, the conservatives, for example, that said, wait a second, what, how are you being hypocritical that you're allowing people to protest in the streets, but saying churches can't gather? And I know the optics of that looks bad, but here's a legal analysis which I think will explain it all, and this applies to India as well. And the, the analysis is this, and the, and the perspective is this, and, I, and this is a legal precedent. The, when the government says you can't gather in a church, they are not abridging your right to religion. They are not saying because of COVID, you can't be a Christian, you can't be a Muslim, you can't be a Hindu, you can't be a Jew. They're not saying that. They're just saying, you just can't go to church you could still practice your religion wherever you are. If you want to go to a park with like 10 or 15 people and spread out and have like a congregation of, uh, to, uh, on that level, you can even do that. And, and you know, philosophically, 
truly speaking, in, for, for if, if you're really religious, religious is in your heart. It's not in, in, in a physical structure, right? So the government saying you cannot be at a church and mass is not an abridgment of your freedom of religion. They're not saying you can't practice religion. Whereas protesting on the street, if the government says you can't do that, that is literally an abridgment of your freedom of speech. They cannot say that you cannot protest because that is actually an abridgment of your God-given freedom. That's memorialized by the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, right? That's the difference. And of course, you know, you, you have to think about that, which is why a lot of people, when they're not thinking, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like, you guys are being hypocritical. No, legally speaking, one is an actual abridgment and the other isn't. You're still out to be, you still have to be a Christian if you're not going to church. Right. I mean, that's that. That is such an important, important nuance to understand about this situation. Also, I know this is. I know this saying. It's extremely cliche, but I can't help but say it. But there is a division between church and state. It is not the same, and you know that also is involved in this as well. Right, you know, right, right. Your, your rights as a human here are a little bit different than your than you know your religion, which are also like you have your rights to practice your religion and do what you need to do, but there is a difference. And also there is a responsibility. There is. There's a responsibility, there's a responsibility that we as people have, um, you know, to not gather when we're not supposed to, or, you know, when it's not safe and we're putting other people in harm's way. Um, and, you know, also at the same time, there is, we also have a, we like, it, it is our responsibility to stand up for people who are dying in the streets at the hands of crooked cops. So not just people, but black people specifically. So, right. you know, I don't know. Um, one is abuse, you know, one is, one is manslaughter as well. <laughs> like, yeah. so um, it's a little, it's, it is a little different when you play out the nuances and the way that you just stated. So also appreciate that Pimo. Sure. Thanks for providing that light. Nuance is <laughs> everything. Nuance is everything. So I, now let's transition over. We, you know, we, we've talked about this for two weeks uh, about, about coronavirus in India. And all I'll say, I guess I'll finish with this, Mary, before we finish it over, is uh, everybody who's listening, uh, by all means, uh, do your research. Look, there are ways you can help, be it donating money to, to causes uh, that are in India. Uh, so do your research. Go out there and look who's legit and who's a, a real nonprofit or a real government organization who's providing services and who's providing real aid to India. Feel free to, to donate any resources you can, be it posting on social media, giving a few dollars, whatever your means to help are, uh, by all means, chip in. Because it truly is more than just an Indian thing. This is a humanitarian crisis. And this literally does affect all of us, even though it's half a world away. So whatever way you can help out, be it bring awareness, donate some money, actually be in India and help where you can, please do that. And, and uh, instead of me telling you what to do, uh, in terms of who's specifically support and organize around, uh, all I'll say is just you know do your research, find find some that that resonates with you, and all I request is that you do it. And so that that's my final two cents on on that. And I would also just like to add in that, gosh, um, uh, one of my favorite astrologers. As speaking of uh, speaking of India and you know the things that the traditions there, uh, one of my favorite astrologers who practice who also is completely knowledgeable of Indian astrology, which is uh, you know very ancient astrology. Um, she pointed out today her name is Shani Nickel, 
Shawnee Nicholas, and she pointed out today that she was wondering what corporations have what corporations that have profited profited off of yoga for years are doing for the folks in India right now. And I want to point that out because there are so many people profiting off of Indian culture right now in the United States, particularly in the yoga wellness community. No offense, I'm not trying to make this about that. Honestly, I'm not. But also, if you are a major yoga brand like Yoga Works or Aloe Yoga, you got to be donating. If, even if you're not them, you also still have to be helping in whatever way you can. And if that's financially or monetarily, do it. Um, but if you're a corporation, if you're a business, like you have to be doing that. Corporate responsibility is underrated. Uh, it's something that's got to be taken more seriously. And that, that that statement, what I just made, I think is a perfect segue to Nestle and what they're doing with water. So let's talk about now Nestle and corporate responsibility and this company that is siphoning off spring water. Let's talk about that, Mary. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as we're heading into another hot, dry, arid summer, uh, the fire season is pretty much already here. It's, you know, it, uh, fire season doesn't start in the summer anymore. Summer or fire season starts now. Also kind of summer starts now too. It's April, uh, especially in the West. In the West, all games are off. It's hot, it is arid, and it is dry in, in the Western United States. And we mostly have the little rain and snow that we cumulatively experienced last winter. Um, it feels it feels very daunting, honestly, knowing that we're just sort of breezing into an even hotter summer than last, while also enduring one of the worst droughts in history. It's hard not to focus on the fires that are pretty much inevitable at this point. It's hard not to focus on the dried out soil that is a result of climate change and impacting agriculture in, in our state. And generally, it's really difficult to not focus just on the fact that the most of the western united states is currently face is currently in an extreme drought conditions but one angle of this elongated fire season slash drought mess that i don't think a lot of people are looking at is what's going on with our water when we talk about drought we are also talking about water we're talking mostly about water, actually. I know that a lot of people, when we think of drought, we think of just dryness, we think of fire, but we are, you know, when you were talking about drought, you were also talking about water. And I don't know if people are asking the right questions around that, particularly regarding our water supply. Like, where is it going? Well, like, where should it go? Is anyone taking it? And who has those rights? Where does that belong? Like, where, who, who does that water belong to? Where should it be going? Who needs it the most? what counties are out of water already. So I say this all because water is, at this point, water is equally or more valuable than gold and it's going to be going forward. And I mean, I mean, it's the river of life. It's ultimately, that's what it is. And some of the most corrupt corporations have had their hands in it. They've always had their hands in it, but they have their hands in it now. And when we're in a drought, a severe drought that is, uh, that's a major problem. And I bring this up because last Friday, California water officials issued a draft order telling Nestle, like the Nestle, to, uh, to cease and desist, ta uh, taking much of the millions of gallons of water pipes out of the San Bernardino National Forest to sell as Arrowhead branded water. Arrowhead branded water is owned by Nestle. Also, Nestle has changed their name 
I'm currently looking it up right now. Um, they've changed their name to, mm, hold on, sorry, Pimo. <laughs> um, they've changed their name to, well, I will tell you later, but they've changed their name. And so they're operating uh, kind of under wraps a little bit right now. And I think that that's probably what makes it a little bit more uh, complicated for people to follow, you know, following the names, following the money. When you change your name, it becomes very, very difficult to do that. But Nestle owns Arrowhead. Nestle is the most popular branded water at, at the grocery store. When I remember when I was little, my family ordered a big water jug like supply of Arrowhead water. And we had it in our living room or we had it in our kitchen weekly. We had people dropping off gallons and gallons and gallons of Arrowhead water. But you know, back in the 90s, nobody was really thinking about where that water was coming from or how it could be impacting us you know, today. And ultimately, right now, um, the draft that the California Waters officials uh, have presented Nestle, the season desist, uh, is just requiring, it, it, will, it requires approval from the California Water Resources Control Board and is a pretty much the latest development in a protracted battle between bottled water between the bottled water company and local environmentalists for years. And Nestle has been accused for a long time of draining water, draining water supplies at the expense of local communities and ecosystems. And a, 20 investi uh, a 2017 investigation found that Nestle was actually taking way more than its share. Last year, the company drew out 58 million gallons far surpassing the 2.3 million gallons a year it was supposed to claim based on the contracts that they already have. So Nestle on average has sucked up 25 times as much water as they actually have the right to, which that is according to this investigation. And um, there are a lot of environmentalist groups that are freaking out about it as they rightfully should be. And there's a chance that Nestle is going to stop or is going to have to stop siphoning as much water as they currently are taking right now. Um, but they're also going to have to pay fines. They might have to pay upwards of a thousand dollar fine for every day since 2017. Like, I think it's like, I don't know, February 22nd, uh, 2017, um, to today. So like, while that seems like a lot of money, it's actually not that much money. <laughs> I like briefly just doing the math. It really only breaks down to the low millions, unfortunately, which a company, a, a, a corporation like Nestle, I mean, sh shoot, like they need to be, they have more money than Amazon. They have more, they are one of the richest corporations in the world. They're up there with Monsanto doing shady stuff. And we pretty much, I mean, like we, they need to be fined so much more than a low million dollar ticket basically telling them like that's just a slap on the wrist it's just basically telling them like no stop doing that but what's actually going to stop a major corporation that has major lobbying dollars to stop siphoning stop siphoning water from uh the san bernardino national forest um I just, I don't know. There's a lot with water. There's so much with water that people don't understand because it is inherently complicated and they make it that way on purpose. They don't want people to know. And the guys at the top, like Nestle, they don't, they also don't want people to know where the water's coming from, how it works, who they're lobbying, what's going on. So while we are in California and in the Western United States facing a massive drought, 
I think that it's critical to be looking at the corporations who have any sort of relationship with water at all, because, and see, just, I mean, because they're the ones that we need to be pressuring to either or and bringing light to for instances like this for taking too much water too much water for their own financial benefit you know it's interesting because nestle literally just uh, the, 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 this news that you're reporting on mary actually is coinciding with and, and i think this is what you're trying to refer to with the name change is this coincided with um a sale that, that nestle was a part of right uh, nestle had been sold uh, a few weeks ago I mean, this is really fresh uh, yes. It's been sold for $4.3 billion. That's what the sale That's exactly price. it. That's and exactly it. It was sold to uh, to two private equity firms, uh, One Rock Capital Partners and Metropolis and Company. Uh, they had, a, I'm just giving the facts behind the purchase here. Uh, they included, or they had assumed uh, purchase of the following water brands, Poland Spring, Deer Park, Arrowhead, Ozarka, uh, Zephyr Hills, and Pure Life. Uh, there was also, uh, and, and just you know, Metropolis uh, had helped Hostess turn around and it helped Pabst Brewing turn around. The brands that are not included in this acquisition I thought was kind of interesting is Perrier, San Pellegrino, and Aquapana, all also different versions of water brands. They were not included. And Nestle, by the way, is a Swiss corporation. And if anybody knows anything about companies that are based in Switzerland, they operate on a whole different level than companies in the United States are. There are things to get away with. There are certain advantages that Swiss companies have, certain privileges that they have without going into it. Maybe this, is a, this could be a whole other episode alone, just talk about absolutely the, uh, the perks of being a Swiss company. But to your point, Mary, that you're saying, like perhaps a lot of what's why what is happening around Nestle, why they feel they're entitled to take 25 times more water than they're entitled to, right, is because well they're they're based in Switzerland and there there are certain things expectations that they have because they're allowed to, right? When you're facilitated to behave a certain way, you believe that that's you're, you're that that's the way things are. Like this is the way life is. So why there is so it. it there's a similar line in this movie called The Talented Mr. Ripley, and where Matt Damon's character, Mr. Ripley, says, based on paraphrasing, says, no matter what anybody does, in your head, you don't think what you're doing is wrong. No matter how evil it is, no matter how crazy or evil that, that action you're doing might be, in your head, you never think it's wrong. It's you justified. Justify it. It's justified somehow. There, 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 there's a bigger purpose of why I'm doing this. And how could it be evil? Because there's a greater good to this, right? And that's what I mean. Companies like Nestle or any of these companies will say when 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 presented with this accusation of like, "Hey, you're doing you're stealing water from us." They're like, "No, we're packaging water, making it nice and pure, and returning it back to you." That's kind of what's going on here. At least to me, that's what I see going on here. It's like that's exactly it. Right? That's exactly it. Yeah, they are fully taking water, which is a free resource it should be a free resource for everybody um they are taking the water and flipping it around for us to buy and taking it taking too much and also shipping it shipping it out of california shipping it i mean they're shipping it everywhere everywhere in the world um i also want to point out that they nestle is also also can be masquerading under the name of blue triton 
Uh, and so if you are someone who's conscious trying not to purchase maybe uh, corrupt water or, you know, corporate water, as they say, um, looking at the, looking at the, where the, who owns the water that you're buying, that information can be found like on the back of a water bottle, looking at the, all the writing on, like on the branding on the bottle. And uh, while a lot of times in the past, and at least until currently, you you would be able to find the name Nestle. You might not see Nestle now. You might see something called Blue Triton, but know that that's Nestle. So don't be fooled. So is Blue Triton the new name that you're referring to? Yes, that was what I was talking about. Okay, and, and, and just just for make, to make sure people are are fully on board, can you spell it? Yeah, it's B L U, and then one word Triton. Capital T R I T O N. All right. So look, look up Blue Triton. Now, I will say this, and this is something that Hassan Minaj had mentioned on his uh, his Netflix show, The Patriot Act. I, I understand, like, we can't be activists about every single issue because then you, you consume nothing. Of course. So you do have to pick and choose your battles. And so if this is a battle you feel so inclined to take on, take it on, you know, and, and, you know, like, you know, Hasse was talking about the concepts of like, well, you know, I, I'm not going to get involved with, with uh, the battle against straws, you know, that just, I, you know, cause you can't do everything. Right. And I think that's the one thing through and through that we want to mention here in the race is we're going to talk about a lot of issues. You don't have to be a superhuman and address every single, you don't have to be perfect about every single issue. But if you do, like Mary, if you pick like maybe five issues and then I pick another five issues and then Dana takes another five issues, well, that's 15 issues three of us are collectively addressing. And then we extrapolate that over a larger community. That's really how we make progress and actually help save mother earth from all the things we've done to her, right? And, and so, and so, yeah, so for those who are inclined to make this your issue, yes, please pay attention to blue, the blue Triton and it's one blue word. Triton. Blue and, Triton, yeah. Right. And so I guess, Mary, if you, if you just kind of put a practical spin on it, why does this matter? I mean, you know, you, you mentioned drought and water shortages, but let's connect it to somebody who lives in say, I don't know, Manhattan Beach, California, and, or they live in Tiburon, California, and they're like, well, oh, oh no. I mean, this, this thing obviously matters beyond desert or the Stanford National Forest. So if you could connect the dots, someone who's just being a little hard right now. Absolutely. So the water supply is important for agriculture. The water supply is also important for the soil that the agriculture, that our, that our crops grow in. And without the proper water, there is going to be less food realistically and that is a huge problem um i mean we're already facing food the uh, the prospect of food shortages quickly and farmers are going to be impacted and if the farmers are impacted that is also one of the most that is like one of the avenues of our security of like food like people care about food and they care about a roof over their head those are like the basic things for survival and security and when water is being taken and there isn't enough to give back to the earth in order for their crops to be grown, we're looking at a situation where a bag of carrots is going to be like $15 or something. It's going to be very expensive or other crops are going to be very, very expensive or just non-existent. Like we're going to go seasons without strawberries or we're going to go seasons without 
peaches or, you know, things that, things that we like. And eventually it will, if nothing changes, we're going to go without things that we need. And that's a problem. Also, we need water to put out fires. We also need water to survive. And when a corporation is taking the water and using it for their own monetary, you know, their own, their own monetary success, like their own for them only, that is a humanitarian issue. And whether you live in Manhattan Beach, Long Beach, Texas, whatever, um, it's important to look at where your water is coming from and under, understand just kind of how the regulatory water kind of works. While it is very complicated, I think that you would it would change your relationship to the water that you use every day. Whether that's what whether that's you know how you view the ocean or the water coming out of your faucet, I think that it would change how you're using water and ultimately how you understand how water is moving through the state. And also, you know, who who wants to support a company? want a company who is making mad money and lobbying people in in congress to sell you water that you don't that like it's not i don't know it's not theirs they shouldn't be doing that to you i, I remember back in the 1990s i think it was late 1990s maybe early aughts uh there was a, a commercial with i believe dennis miller the comedian i think it was him in the commercial and <laughs> He, he, it's, it's basically, he's standing with the camera and there's a white background. It's just him and the camera and this basic screen. And he's, he's given this, this little 15 second diet or it's this like heartfelt discussion of like water. It's the basic, you know, basic building block of life. And they have the nerve to charge you a dollar for it. And you know, <laughs> when water was just a dollar, right? <laughs> just a dollar. Yeah. Gosh. And, and he, he he made, I mean, politically, I don't agree with Dennis Miller, but his point that he made in that commercial was so on point because, like he said, Mary, water is the foundation of life. And without it, we are literally nothing. We are made of water. 75% of earth is made of water. We'll we, die. We'll die without it. We need it. We need it all day, every day. Exactly, you know? And... Like even I could tell you just my own personal anecdote, like the days I have, I have my days where I, I don't drink as much water and I feel it, my body does react a certain way. Whereas where I have my, my normal allocation of water, my body functions perfectly fine. I, I, and if you pay attention to, to your body, you'll, you'll, you'll notice that as well. Anybody who does that will notice that. So water matters and it, it, the fact that it has been corporatized, like I said, corporate That's water. Corporate water. Mm-hmm. It is an issue. So. So Dana, or not Dana, Mary, thank you for, for bringing this to our attention. And hopefully anybody who's listening will, 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 will take your words to heart and at least pay attention. I mean, again, we're not, we're not yeah. advocating for any real action, just to bring this to your attention. Absolutely. And decide what to do with this information accordingly. Absolutely. And also one thing I want to add too is, I mean, it's hard to bring down a corporation like Nestle. It's hard to bring down a corporation like Monsanto. And like, while there are activists dedicated to doing both of those things, which I support so hard, you know, um, sometimes it feels very daunting as people maybe like you or me, Pimo, who, you know, are busy in our daily lives. We are, I don't even know, you know, working every day, trying to hustle, you know, survive out in the world in this crazy world that we live in. But, um, it does make a difference when you decide to buy different water. If you decide not to buy Nestle water, basically it does make a difference. And like, if you are someone who is very concerned about like 
you know, your contribution doesn't build up to the collective, like everybody has to be on board and not everybody is on board. You know, it's a very common, you know, common ideology to kind of fall into and kind of, you know, stop caring about these types of topics. And I hear it, I hear it and I feel it too, but I just know that it does make a difference. One person does make a difference. Even if it's just a difference to yourself, just know that like, even like you, you individually are not contributing to the bullshit. And that's important. Even if it's just you. 100% agree. And I just want to make one last point because this is something you want to share in common. Um, the first time you and I did a podcast together, I want to say it was 2017 ish, mm-hmm. 2018. Yeah. And we, we had a conversation about desalination. Yep. In, in oh, Poseidon. Poseidon, yeah, Poseidon desalination in, in Central Orange County. And the reason I bring this up is because one thing you and I talked about in that podcast episode, which is a, an episode of OC Speakly, what we had talked about was the power of these water boards. Right. Several water boards, regional. And you know, Poseidon's here, you know, spending a billion dollars to build a plant or to rebuild a plant for to separate salt from water in, in, in Huntington Beach. And obviously they have a lot at stake because they got if they're spending a billion, they're making hopefully most more all that and then some more back. So it's literally a billion dollar interest. So they're spending money on the water board. And Mary, I know you had went to these waterboard meetings, and I'm sure there were days where there just weren't enough people there. But yet this 15 or 20 member board, however many people are on that board, are literally making a decision that are affecting millions of lives. And yeah. you had 10, 20, 30 people at these meetings. So it's not, just, it's not just they're powerful, they're also not being held accountable because there's no one there to keep them in check. It's also so hard to, it's hard because the politics around water is so deeply complicated. And in so many ways, it doesn't make sense. It is not like just going to a city council meeting and hearing about some prop, some problem in your community that you have a direct relationship with that you can see play out before you. It is not like that. You go to a water board meeting and they are breaking down how water is flowing through the city, which doesn't make any sense. And why is it flowing certain ways? It's because of money. It always is because of money. And I mean, how, the, how the water is divided up between cities is also so bizarre and crazy. Um, like, and also, none of them know about water. None of them are water experts. And this, that's what's shitty. <laughs> this is something that, that I've seen a common, I'm sure you've seen a team, Eric, a common trend in general, politically. Now you're having a lot of agencies uh, and and legislative bodies that have quasi judicial powers are being occupied by people who are career politicians. This is why people are off by politics because you no longer have like a board of experts who know the field. Right. You have a board of people who are, oh yeah, I want to put someone on a fishing board who has experience in cooking corn. Because we need a, a, a neutral party that knows something about to make a fair decision. I'm like, no, it's, it's supposed to be the other way. I want someone who is an expert on fishing to be on a fishing board because they know the, they know that world. And the California, for example, the California Fish and Game Commission, five members on the board, all five, the current, the current roster, none of them are professional anglers or fishers. Whereas 10 years ago, they were, right? Same thing on these water boards. 
these aren't people who work in water. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's also, I've heard, I've heard that it's also like that on the nuclear commission too. They're not nuclear scientists, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, right? <laughs> no, they're, they're not. They're not. They're also career politicians. <laughs> right. And then, like you said, you have all the, you, you have all these like 200 page presentations with yep. 190 of them are so technical. Even people like me or you, Mary, who do this for, for profession, even we're like, huh, what am I reading? I, I, I'm supposed to know this like back and forth. And even I don't know what I'm reading. And I do this for a living. How is someone who is, how is somebody who's got a family, has a, a nine to five job and all these other errands to do, who has no time to read a 200 page technical document supposed to parse through this? If we even we can't do it. Absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, I think, though, that one thing that I did learn about that is that there is an entire community that do really care about water yes. everywhere. There is. And people show up to those water board meetings, environmentalists, people who have dedicated their lives to water, show up to those meetings every Tuesday or, you know, whenever it is. And if you if you decide that you are passionate about water and you really care about that, which some people are, you know, um, go to the meetings. I recommend going to the meetings and introducing yourselves to the people who show up every week because they will be able to give you the inside on what's going on. That's how I, that's honestly how I was able to even report on water, on, on water policy in, in North Orange County, in Huntington Beach. It's the only way that I survived doing that, and it helped. And also, once you have somebody kind of giving you the tutorial on what's going on, what has happened, what they're actually saying, why it's so confusing, it changes the game. It does absolutely change your relationship to water. And also, one thing that I have always stuck stuck by and I feel it, I still feel it very intensely is you don't have to be, you don't have to go to Standing Rock or a protest like that to be a water protector. All you really have to do is go to your local water board meetings. Right. And that's how you protect the water coming out of your faucet. That's how you, that's how you change it on a local level is going to those meetings. 100% agree. Well, Mary, thank you so much for this presentation. This was a great discussion. I appreciate you bringing us to our attention. And next week we'll have another discussion and we'll have Mary, we'll have Mary and Dana and myself all on the show next week. So yeah. with that, we hope this was an informative uh, conversation for you, the audience, and feel free to find us on social media. You know, you can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, just look up Erased Enviro and you'll find us and feel free to comment on our discussion also, you could find our podcast on Apple Music and Amazon Music and Google Podcast and Google Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you find podcasts. So feel free to download us and subscribe to us and rate us. The more we get rated, the more downloads we get, the more visible we get. So thank you for that in advance. Until next week, uh, we will uh, leave you with more on our social media pages. And also don't forget to visit ah1.live that's our website we have articles there on the environment and other asian highway news on behalf of mary and on behalf of dana this is pimo thank you so much for tuning in we'll talk to you next week